Chemical Watch podcast. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Hello and welcome to this week's news podcast hosted by members of the Chemical Watch team. I'm Kate Lowe, Global Managing Editor at Chemical Watch. And for today's episode, I am joined by our North American Managing Editor, Terry Highland, Europe Correspondent, Clelia Oziel, and Science Editor, Andrew Turley. The subjects we'll be discussing today include the reaction from industry groups to a European Commission proposal to fast-track blanket restrictions with a grouping approach under reach. We will also take a look at a suggestion from the European Commission to include endocrine disruption in the toxicity part of the criteria for new hazard classes for persistent substances. But first, let's start with the latest developments from the US regarding a proposal made by the US EPA in June for a per and polyfluoroalkyl substance or PFAS reporting rule that would require producers and importers to supply extensive information on more than 1,300 of the substances used in the US over the last 10 years. The 2020 National Defense Authorization Act added to TOSCA Section 8A a one-time disclosure requirement for PFASs produced and imported since the 1st of January 2011, and the EPA announced a proposed rule on the 10th of June this year. Under the proposal, manufacturers and importers would need to disclose details regarding their use of any of the compounds, including chemical identity, use classifications, quantities generated and processed, byproducts, environmental and health impacts, worker exposure counts and lengths, and disposal. Now, in the latest development, several industry groups have said the EPA should alter its proposed rule to collect 10 years of data and are looking instead for a phased-in approach with more exemptions from the reporting requirements. Now, Terry, um, can you tell us more about what the industry groups are actually calling for? Yeah, hi. Thanks, Kate. So the comment period for that June proposal just ended recently. And as you said, Kate, the proposal calls for one-time reporting of PFAS that were imported or produced since January 2011, with reporting proposed to start one year after the rule is finalized, and that rule must be finalized by January 2023. Now, in their comments, many businesses said that the proposal is not just burdensome, but nearly impossible to comply with. And they say it might actually result in the EPA getting overloaded with information that may be of varying accuracy and usefulness. And so to put their argument in in perspective, look at a a company that might be subject to the rule, they would have to go back and determine what, if any, PFAS were used in products they made or imported back when Prince William was still single. And fast forward to today, he and Kate have three kids now. So... That's a long look back period. And as you said, uh, covering some 1300 types of PFAS, according to the EPA. Now, instead of that all at once reporting approach, 
a coalition of groups, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the American Chemistry Council, and several downstream users, said the EPA should instead focus first on those PFASs where there's already accurate peer-reviewed data and approved test methods to validate whatever data they, they send in. And they say this would yield more useful and reliable information. The, the business groups also said that in general, companies would need more time to comply with these reporting requirements. And also said that some of the typical Tosca exemptions should, should apply as well. And that would exclude imported articles, impurities, byproducts, and de minimis amounts of PFAS from the reporting requirements. So all told, the American Chemistry Council, uh, in their own sort of separate comments, said this more focused approach would help the EPA better manage and sort through what is very likely to be a very large amount of reporting data. And if the EPA then decides more information is needed or exemption should be removed, they can always do so down the road. Okay, thanks, Terry. Um, many NGOs, uh, scientists and state regulators have taken quite a different view. So can you tell us more um, about what these groups are saying uh, about the PFAS reporting proposal? Right. So not surprisingly, the NGOs uh, and industry were not on the same side of the argument, but the differences here were almost diametrically opposed. A variety of NGOs, academics, and some state regulators all said they want the EPA to expand the proposal and to collect the information on a faster timeline. For example, Earth Justice led a coalition calling for the reporting mandate to extend not only to manufacturers and importers, but also to processors who they say are better positioned to provide information on the use of PFAS in products. The Environmental Council of States, which, which works with state agencies, uh, and then along with a pair of drinking water groups, said that the PFAS data gathering should be required every year and shouldn't just be a one-time event. And another NGO group said that the January 2023 deadline to finalize the rule, that that was just too far away. They say the EPA needs this information now so it can start taking effective action to control PFAS exposures. Rather than finalize this rule at early 2023, they say, the EPA should, should work to finish the rule by the first quarter of next year or within the next six months or so. And other groups also said the agency should use a broader definition of PFAS, one that's closer to what the OECD has put forward. And that would be to make sure that no, no varieties or types of PFAS structures are left out of the reporting requirements. Okay, thanks, Terry. So uh, what happens next? Um, is there any indication about where the EPA might come down on this in a final rule? Well, so like we've said, the EPA still has a while until the 1st of January 2023 to, to issue that final rule. And now that the comment period on the proposed rule has closed, it's very likely the agency will use much of that remaining 15 months to go through those comments uh, before it issues a final rule fairly close to that uh, January 2023 date. But the agency has in, in recent weeks hinted that it may be getting a little frustrated with industry's position, at least the position by some groups in industry, that the EPA is simply asking the impossible, and not just with this PFAS proposal, but with other actions as well. 
uh, Michal Friedhoff, who heads up the EPA's chemicals office, spoke at the Product Stewardship Society's annual PSX conference last month. And in her comments, she had some strong words for some of the complaining entities. She compared industry's comments on sort of the impossibility of the, the proposed PFAS reporting rule to the, the reaction that the EPA received on its final rule on PIP 3 to 1. And that rule took effect earlier this year. That rule, uh, as, as podcast listeners may remember, uh, bans the use of PIP 3 1 in many product articles. And uh, the EPA has now delayed compliance on those PIP restrictions for a full year, uh, extending compliance until March 2022. And the EPA took that action after just a wave of industry comments saying they could not comply on such a short timeline because they just didn't know, and maybe in some cases still don't know, where PIP may be in their supply chains. Some business groups even said it could take six, seven, eight years to figure out where all the PIP 3 to 1 is in their products and supplies and then implement a suitable alternative. Well, at the Product Stewardship Conference, Dr. Friedhoff said many of the same companies saying that the PFAS reporting rule is too onerous were also saying they couldn't comply with the PIP rule because they needed time to analyze their supply chains. And she said it's, it's just not tenable for industry to complain about the PIP rule because they don't know what's in their supply chains, and then turn around and complain about the proposed PFAS reporting rule that asks them to look at what's in their supply chains. <laughs> so basically, she said industry can't have it both ways, that it, it won't work to say we can't put, comply with one rule because we don't know what's in our products, and then for another proposal, say it's too much trouble to find out what's in our products. Now, of course, Dr. Friedhoff's comments don't necessarily mean the EPA will adopt a certain course of action or not. Uh, but in the end, the EPA is somewhat constrained by, by the law that created the PFAS reporting requirement in the first place. And as you had mentioned, Kate, the U.S. Congress actually mandated the PFAS reporting as part of that 2020 defense spending bill. And that law mandated that the EPA finalize reporting by the 1st of January, 2023, although it can do it sooner. And the text of that law says the reporting has to cover, quote, each person who has manufactured a chemical substance that is a PFAS in any year since January, January 1st, 2011. So while the EPA certainly has some discretion to implement a rule that it feels will be the most effective and efficient, uh, the agency also might feel that it really doesn't have a lot of legal wheel room to limit reporting in any way or phase in the reporting in stages, even if it wanted to. Okay, thank you very much for that, Terry. So now let's turn to Europe uh, and the reaction from industry groups to a European Commission proposal to fast track blanket restrictions with a grouping approach under REACH. Now, back in June, the European Commission proposed a rolling list of substances and potential restrictions under a new restrictions roadmap, which would comprise all planned, prepared and progressed restrictions, including substances set for harmonised classification or candidate listing under CLP. 
Now, the Commission's roadmap was originally drawn up to implement a chemical strategy commitment to prioritise specific substance groups such as carcinogenic, mutagenic and reprotoxic substances and endocrine disruptors for group restrictions. However, the new initiative goes beyond the specific restrictions outlined in the strategy, proposing a rolling list which would be the cornerstone for multi-annual planning of restrictions and authorizations, the EU executive said. Now, Clelia, uh, you reported this week that the European Commission proposal has been met with, as you said, an uproar of objections and questions from industry groups. So can you just tell us more uh, what their main concerns are? Hi, Kate. Um, So that's right. Um, The Commission had asked for comments on the restrictions roadmap And quite a few industry groups from diverse sectors submitted responses to the CARICAP. The main issue that they raise is the idea of introducing so-called blanket restrictions, and by that I mean restrictions on all uses of a group of similar substances, before a a generic approach to risk management is fully implemented. So let me explain this concept a bit more. One of the commitments the Commission made in the Chemical Strategy for Sustainability is to extend what it calls generic risk management more broadly across chemicals regulation. This is a term coined by the Commission in the strategy to refer to a type of management that is based primarily on hazard with only a very broad consideration of exposure. The motivation here is efficiency. The Commission wants to do things faster and with less fuss, and it believes that this generic approach to risk management is the way to do it. So this is a big change and it will take time to implement. In the meantime, the Commission says it needs something else that will speed up the rate of new regulation, i.e. it doesn't want to wait for all the details on generic risk management to be decided. It wants speed now. So it suggested an interim approach, which is based on grouping, and this is worrying for industry. So there is nothing new about the grouping approach. In Europe, we have been talking about grouping for some time as a way of speeding up regulation of harmful chemicals and avoiding regrettable substitution. And ECHA has been assessing substances in groups under its integrated regulatory strategy. But with the roadmap, which, by the way, is a draft, so it is subject to revision. We now have a long list of groups of chemicals targeted for restrictions for all uses under the so-called interim solution. And this is where the challenge from industry is centered around. So what is on the list, on, on the roadmap? We have the usual suspects, such as PFASs and bisphenols, and also many others, such as MCCPs, borates, and importantly, all skin sensitizers in consumer products. What's at stake for industry is huge, and therefore they're calling for proper risk assessments in all cases, taking into consideration key variables such as use, and asking for clarifications and the scientific rationale for these groups, They also want a fine-tuning of the groups, which they say might lead to subgroups based on the information on 
structural similarities, hazards, exposure, and use. Uh, let me add also that this consultation with the industry is going to be massively important. The Commission is saying that they will not necessarily propose group restrictions on all the substances that are on in the roadmap, and that further investigations may lead to changes uh, in, in regulatory action. For example, it may it, they may decide to implement authorization instead of restriction on some of the substance groups there. Okay, thank you, Clelia. That's really helpful. So speaking at the Chemical Watch Global Enforcement Summit on the 28th of September, um, the executive director of the NGO ChemTrust, Michael Warhurst, took um, a very different view. Um, can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. So as usual, NGOs have a completely different perspective on this. They have been complaining for years about how the pace of restrictions has been too slow on the reach and that a system change is needed to speed things up by regulating chemicals in groups rather than one by one. Essentially, what the NGOs want is reversing the burden of proof from the regulators to the industry. Now, let me explain. A key principle of reach is no data, no market. But rather than leading to the creation of a lot of data to enable regulators to take action on harmful chemicals, this system has led to what Dr. Warhurst calls no data, no problem, meaning that industry has not been incentivized enough to create data. We have some 23,000 chemicals under reach, and for most of them, we have very little or maybe even no data. And without data, there is no action. So this approach, whereby we begin by regulating harmful chemicals as groups by making the assumption that all the chemicals in that group are as hazardous as the most hazardous member of the group, would reverse that burden of proof on data and force the industry to come up with new methods to create data, and if they can, to prove that a particular chemical that they want to use is not harmful. So the burden of proof is reversed. Dr. Warhurst told the conference last week that this precautionary read across is much more logical and scientific and would make the system more protective of human health and the environment. Okay, thank you very much for that, Clelia. Um, now, I understand that among the comments submitted in response to the Commission's proposal, a proposed ban on skin sensitizers in consumer mixtures has proved to be of particular concern. Now, again, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it is clear from the comments that the industry is particularly concerned about the possible restriction on skin sensitizing. Um, that, that's a slightly unusual way to group chemicals because it's focused on the hazard endpoint rather than the chemical composition or structure. So for example, a group such as PFAS, those substances are grouped together because they have similar molecular structures containing lots and lots of fluorines. Now, they may also share hazard properties, but that is secondary to the grouping. In the case of skin sensitizers, the commission is starting with the hazard. Inevitably, that makes for a very wide group of chemicals. We're talking about many thousands of them. 
and they are used absolutely everywhere. In fact, most consumer products, including cosmetics and detergents, contain what would be construed as a skin sensitizer. And there's huge variation in terms of their potency and exposure. Um, there's, and and uh, a lot of these industry associations are saying that there is no basis for treating all of them as one group to be managed as a simple group restriction. For example, um, they include preservatives, which in many cases are necessary in products and not harmful, or they could be fragrances, which again can be vital for certain products and not necessarily harmful. So industry associations such as Cosmetics Europe, ISA, the Soaps and Detergents Association, and the Downstream Users Group, DAC, are strongly opposed to group action on these chemicals. They say that this could hit many industries severely and it is unnecessary. But they do admit that there is merit in case-by-case -case restrictions on individual substances, uh, provided that full risk assessments can be carried out. Another reason for the strong reaction uh, from, from industry is that skin sensitizers were not explicitly mentioned in the chemical strategy. So uh, these groups are questioning why the Commission is going beyond the scope of the strategy to include uh, skin sensitizers in, in, in the roadmap. So to sum up, Kate, nothing is definitive, um, definite at this point, and almost certainly we will see some revisions uh, to the Commission's roadmap. What is certain, however, is that there are a lot of battles ahead and industry will put up a good fight to mitigate the damage from these restrictions. Okay, thank you very much, Clelia. Now, staying with Europe, uh, let's turn now to a suggestion from the European Commission to include endocrine disruption in the toxicity part of the criteria for new hazard classes for persistent substances. Now, Andrew, um, can you tell us why the Commission has suggested this uh, and also a little more about what the suggestion involves? Hi, Kate. Uh, the Commission wants to create a, a range of new hazard classes under CLP uh, and a subset of those new classes will be for persistence. Uh, but it's not persistence on its own, it's persistence when combined with something else uh, and, and the combination represents a concern. So we're already familiar with the idea of there being regulation when persistence is combined with uh, bioaccumulation. This is uh, what already happens under REACH, for example, and it happens in two ways. Compounds can be identified as substances of very high concern, SVHCs, uh, on the basis that they are persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic, which is PBT, and that's one way, or they can be identified as SVHCs on the basis that they are very persistent, very bioaccumulative, which is VP. VB, and that's another way. Okay, so two ways. Now the Commission wants to copy this idea across to CLP, and in doing so, uh, it needs to decide if it will copy it uh, across exactly as it is or make some changes. One area for potential change is the toxicity part. Currently, endocrine disruption is not part of the REACH SVHC rules relating directly to 
PBTs and VPDBs, but the Commission is suggesting that it becomes part of the new hazard classes under CLP. And that does fit with the Commission's other plans concerning endocrine disruption uh, as laid out in the Chemical Strategy for Sustainability. That strategy, in fact, has a whole uh, group of measures aimed at uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Um, so, what else did the Commission say regarding new hazard classes for persistent substances? Okay, I, I should say that all this is coming from uh, documents provided by the Commission ahead of a Caracal meeting uh, last Thursday. So, that's a, a meeting of um, EU competent authorities. Um, and the Commission says in those documents um, that they are intended for preliminary discussion and should not be regarded as either a final proposal or representative of the final view of the Commission. So that's really important to note. Uh, nevertheless, in addition to the comment about endocrine disruption, the Commission said uh, it thinks it would be better to have two classes for mobile and persistent and another two classes for mobile and bioaccumulative. It also said it would be better not uh, to have a category for uh, suspected. Uh, what does all this mean? Well, another area for potential change is the number of classes. So under REACH, as I said, there's PBT and VPVB. Uh, what that second one means is that there doesn't actually have to be any toxicity for the uh, regulatory measure to be triggered, if there's sufficient persistence and bioaccumulation, then using uh, a form of the precautionary principle, that's enough for regulation. Um, okay, so the question is, should there be two classes also under CLP? The Commission is uh, tentatively saying yes, it thinks there should, but it's you know asking competent authorities for their view. Um, but as I said before, you know all of this is up for discussion. Uh, the Commission is also talking about creating classes for persistence and mobility that would mirror uh, the ones for persistence and bioaccumulation. Those would be persistent, mobile and toxic, which is PMT, and very persistent, very mobile, which is VPVM. So overall four classes, deep breath, PBT, VPVB, uh, those are the two bioaccumulative ones, and then PMT and VPVM, uh, which are the two uh, classes for mobility. And then finally, the Commission also says in the document that it doesn't think a suspected category is for the best. Usually that's uh, category two. So uh, for some hazard classes, you, you break down um, severity uh, according to um, uh, the... Uh, evidence that's available. So uh, there might be category 1A, category 1B corresponding to presumed in the case of uh, 1B or known in the case of 1A. And then you have the second category, which is for suspected. That applies to uh, carcinogens, for, for instance. The Commission is saying here it doesn't, uh, doesn't think it needs it for, um, for these persistence uh, hazard classes. Okay, thank you very much for that, Andrew. So what is the next step? So these plans are all part of the wider revision of CLP that the Commission is making. Uh, there's an ongoing public consultation which is open until the 15th of November. In the long run, we're 
expecting a proposal from the Commission at some point. Um, it has said it will begin discussions on that proposal by the second quarter of 2022, but it's not committing to anything more firm than that at this stage. In the meantime, um, there are a lot of technical details to resolve. In terms of these particular hazard classes for persistence, one of the biggest issues is going to be how um, mobility is defined, with mobility being a wholly new concept uh, for chemicals regulation. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, Andrew. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. So thank you again to Terry, Clelia and Andrew for sharing their insight into today's stories with us. And thank you to you, our audience, for listening to today's episode. Now, for more on the topics discussed today, please head over to the Chemical Watch website at chemicalwatch.com. And if you would like to hear more specifically about the changes taking place in Europe, why not join us on the 20th of October for our virtual conference, the EU Chemical Strategy for Sustainability one year on, where we'll be joined by an expert lineup of speakers to discuss the strategy so far and what's coming next. So until next week, goodbye. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. The Chemical Watch Podcast.